There's an old spiritual, you probably know it, that begins this way. In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. And it continues saying, give me Jesus, give me Jesus. You may have all this world, but give me Jesus. One of the things I really like about being an Episcopalian is that we receive Jesus on the way. During the Eucharist, we get up from our seats. We walk down the aisle. We kneel or stand before the altar, shoulder to shoulder. We open our hands. We don't have to say anything. But in the context of the Eucharistic liturgy, this gesture means what the song says, give me Jesus. After we receive the bread of Christ's body and the cup of Christ's salvation, we continue on. We return to the place we came from and we pray. Together we raise our voices to give thanks for the meal. And then we ask God to send us out to do the work God has given us to do. The liturgy makes it clear that God's presence with us in Jesus is nourishment and solace. But it is also our strength. It's a gift. We have done nothing to earn. But it is also a call that demands everything. To receive Jesus is to receive a very specific way of life, a way of truth that confronts the forces of evil, a way of peace that stands up to violence, a way of love that transforms hate and honors the dignity of every living thing. In our gospel reading this morning, four fishermen are invited into this way of life. They meet the shore-walking Jesus next to the Sea of Galilee, who calls out to them, follow me, and they do. They leave behind their nets, the familiar ways they have obtained sustenance and security, and they learn very quickly, as does anyone who reads the book of Mark, that the life that Jesus offers is a radically different one. Some Christians and sometimes have interpreted the way of Jesus as leaving the world behind, forsaking the urges of this mortal life and hoping for an eternal home. And there is a hint of this in Paul's letter from the reading in 1 Corinthians, isn't there? About the life that is offered to those who hitch themselves to Jesus Convinced that the present form of this world is passing away, Paul says, let those who have spouses be as though they have none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no possessions, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Strange things to say, perhaps, 
unless like Paul, you are convinced the attachments we humans have to what presently is can actually prevent us from embracing the fullness of the future God is offering. Unless, like the disciples, you realize that following Jesus means a confrontation with the world, with the powers of violence and exclusion, with all those things that would dispossess and dismean, including those things within ourselves. So here we come to Jonah. Jonah, who was called to leave everything behind so that he might speak truth to the great Assyrian city of Nineveh, those belonging belonging to those who had previously conquered the people of Israel, Jonah's people. And to Jonah, the Ninevites likely continued to represent a political, military, and economic threat. How could they now be the subject of God's grace? Unable to believe how the substance of God's truth and God's mercy could justifiably be offered to his enemies and unwilling to offer the Ninevites God's invitation to repent and take on a radically different life, Jonah flees to Tarshish in the opposite direction of Nineveh on a boat. You know the story. God sends that crazy storm to redirect the wayward prophet. Jonah jumps into the sea to escape the storm. He is swallowed by a great fish who vomits him out on the shores of Nineveh. And there, covered in the ick of his former life, the word of the Lord came to him a second time. Standing on the shores of his second chance, one would think Jonah would appreciate the do-over. In fact, the scenario reminded me of the text we read together last week in Jeremiah. For one could say that Jonah and the city alike were standing at the crossroads, invited by God to look and to do some self-reflection. While the city had to consider the evil they had done to others and thus also to themselves, Jonah was invited again to see the future in light of God's abundant compassion rather than plagued by the inevitability of the past. About 12 years ago at Christmas time, with all of our extended family gathered around, my oldest child, who was just about two years old at the time, was sitting in her high chair, listening to the adult chatter. She was eating quietly. Her little pudgy fingers were kind of sorting through all the food on her tray, the vegetables, the red cranberry sauce, the hot, sticky roll. She wasn't finding what she wanted in those parcels of food. So all of a sudden, she raised her voice. Mo meat, she declared. And she signed the word for please, and we all thought that that was very cute, and we smiled. And one of the family members got up from the table and started carving a little bit more off the Christmas roast. And as they were doing that, her little fists came down fast and hard on that high chair tray, and she began to chant, more meat, more meat. And I was aghast. I wondered who had taught her to do this. Surely neither her father and I had ever behaved that way, and certainly not at the dinner table. But there she was, raising her voice for more, 
sure that the meaty substance of what she had already tasted and seen signaled to a greater abundance that she, decided, that she desired to share. For someone who was raised with the you get what you get and you don't throw a fit mentality, I am often too disconnected from my own deepest desires. I don't know if that's true for you too. I'm too often unable to connect them to the possibility of God's abundant more. I am too occupied, as Paul says, with the dealings of this world, too distracted with the worries of my life to say yes to more, to show up, to receive the gift of God's more being offered, even at times here in our midst, where God's reign and God's future reside, Jesus says. For sometimes Christians have tried to explain that the life found in Jesus is a life not of this world, but that need not mean denial. Rather, by this we are saying that a life lived oriented to God's life is not contained by the current order, not arranged by the present systems of power, not explainable to the ruling logics of success. No, the life offered to us in Jesus is freely given, lest anyone can boast, and it is more than what we can presently taste or see. But to receive that extravagant gift, sometimes we have to let go of our hold of the world as it is. We have to release our dedication to the wounds of the past. We have to show up together and act as though we are not of this world, believing in what we can do together with God's help. It's like that small morsel of bread and the sip of wine foreshadowing the larger feast. It's like that passionate desire for justice and for more abundant life. This is the way of Jesus. This is the substance of Emmanuel, sustenance for the journey, strength for renewal, hope for sinners and those sinned against. And so little by little and all at once, we, like the first disciples, and like Jonah and Paul and Garen, are learning a Jesus-shaped hunger for the good stuff, for more of God. We open our hands, we open our hearts, we open our minds in a simple petition. We say no, no, to the death-dealing powers of this world. You may have all this, but give me greater life, give me greater love, Give me greater belonging. Give me Jesus. Amen.